men, we can do better. It's a hard time to be a man. The mm-hmm. 21st century is the hardest time to be a man in the history of men with Me Too and the empowerment of women, the changing of social structures and the schooling. And so there's really an opportunity and men are heading in the wrong direction. They're, they're, they're going to porn and video games and extending their adolescence and all these things. There's, there's really an opportunity for men to step up. This is your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 334 with guest Robert Candell. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no-BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ass Kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. Today, I have an interesting guest for you. Robert approached us to be on the podcast, and at first I was like, what? I don't I don't know what this means. Your book is called Unhidden. But the more I looked into it and was reading excerpts from his book, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have you on. So his book, book is called Unhidden. Book for men and those confused by them. And I know that the vast majority of you are women, but also, you know, we all have men in our lives that we love. <laughs> so <laughs> I figured that Robert would be a great guest over here. And I was not disappointed. You are going to love this conversation that I had with him that I actually, sadly, had to record twice. I think I might have mentioned on a previous episode, I had a run-in with some recording software that we tried to switch to that ended up being a massive hashtag fail. And the original episode that I had with him was lost. And so I, he was gracious enough to come back and record with me. And maybe it was meant to be that this second conversation was actually the better one. But before I tell you a little bit about Robert, I need your stories. You know, in How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, if you read that book or listened to it, or really most self-help books, not just mine, you read stories and anecdotes and examples from real people. All of the stories in How to Stop Feeling Like Shit were either from clients or women in my programs or just sometimes from your kick-ass life community members. And I am writing my third book and I am at the point where I'm coming to parts of the chapters where I need examples. I need real life examples from you, the readers. So if you head on over to my website, yourkickasslife.com slash story, I'm going to be a little more organized about collecting them as I have been previously. (laughs) I would love if you would head over there. There are about three or four different questions on different topics that I would love your stories. You don't have to answer all of the questions. If there's one that jumps out at you and you're like, oh my gosh, that's totally me, then just answer the one. All of the guidelines and what we need are there on that page. And if you are listening to this episode several months from now for when it first came out and you don't see any questions, questions there. That just means that I have fulfilled everything that I need for that particular topic and I don't need any stories right now. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to send us your stories. I cannot wait to read and I I cannot thank you enough because this is invaluable. This is important to the book for people to be able to see themselves in your stories because if it was all just my stories, it wouldn't really be a self-help book. It would be a memoir. So Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, yourkickasslife.com slash story. 
And again, thank you. All right, let's get over to this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Robert Kandel, known as the Modern Mantor, is an interpersonal communications and relationship expert, speaker, podcaster, and author. His focus lies in navigating and educating the public around the modern man and his many nuances in the modern era. Kandel is the host of a podcast called Tough Love, your pragmatic guide to relationships, sex, and purpose in the 21st century, and an author of Amazon number one bestseller, Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. So without further ado, here is Robert. Robert, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. I am so happy to have you because... I know that your book is called Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by him, but I yeah. do have some I do have some male listeners and okay. I have a lot of women listeners who love the men in their life and that's why I knew I had to have you on and to talk about these things that are so important to. So I want to just jump in to like let's talk about hiding and that's obviously the title of your book. So tell mm-hmm. us where do men tend to hide and why? They tend to hide Many, many places where they fear rejection, loss of position in the imaginary hierarchy, looking bad, and uh, having to face their own inefficiencies and inabilities. So, uh, lots of places. Yeah, it sounds like being human, but I, but I, I imagine that hiding is a human thing that we do, but it definitely has its nuances within genders. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, what we, what men care about versus what women care about is significantly different. And the reason, I think the main reason men hide is that they were not taught anything differently. Uh They were taught things like no retreat, no surrender, no death before uh. dishonor. I mean, just the ethos of the maleness. It's just the, it, we're just taught to not show weakness, to grin and bear right. it, to, you know, I don't know if I can say this, but don't be a pussy, don't be a baby, don't connect to anything feminine because that's weak. Instead, be a strong model boy or you'll pay the consequences. Yeah, and the consequences. I think... It, it, I imagine that the consequences seem like they, like our old lizard brain might tell men that if you, the consequences are death, right? Like to be rejected from the group. Well, yes. I mean, not literal death. I mean, for some, yes, but it might feel like being rejected might mean the demise of your life. Let me tell you about this theory. Okay. Uh, I learned this from NLP Marin, a guy named Carl likes to talk about this. He says there's two types of the brain. There's the the animal brain and the human brain. The animal brain is comprised of the reptilian brain, Mm -hmm. the lizard brain, the part that handles our respiration, the fight or flight. And then there's also the limbic system, which is sort of autonomic and we're not as connected. And then there's the other part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex and the cortex. The lizard brain believes whatever they survive is good. Hmm. The human brain, which has rational cognitive thought, doesn't have the same opinion. So as a child, if you survive, let's say, child abuse, Mm -hmm. your lizard brain thinks that child abuse is good because you survived it. Interesting. So it's a completely subconscious belief. Right. The human brain's like, ah, I never want to do that again. Right. And so the different parts of our brain are in conflict with each other. The lizard brain saying, let's attract 
abuse because it's good. Mm-hmm. The human brain's like, I never want to do that again. And so that's why you see so many people who don't do the work, who don't look internally, are redoing all the habits they learn from zero in the womb to eight, or we can even go into the ancestral. So boys who are shown the uh, improprieties of their fathers and grandfathers, the way they taught women, treated women, the way they treated themselves, they're thinking, oh, I need to do the same thing Mm -hmm. because it's a good thing because I survived it. That's fascinating. It sounds like, you know, that's why we hear things like, I don't know why I keep repeating these same behaviors when I know that they're not serving me or they're killing my relationships or they're getting me in trouble and jail. And yes. Okay. That reminds me a little bit of, and this might be off the record, but are you familiar with Harv Hendricks? Harville Hendricks. Yeah. Yes. Getting to love you want and his Imago theory. Uh Uh-huh. Of course. So it's along the same lines. It sounds like. Yes. His theory is basically in your adult relationships. You try to heal the wounds of your past. Yeah. Through our partners. Right. From, we use mm-hmm. use our partners to heal those childhood wounds. Mm-hmm. So if you look at your partner, you're like, oh, I wonder, oh, why did I How pick did this I person? How did I end up marrying oh. my mother or my father? Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Raise his hand. Okay. (laughs) I I just, thank you for sharing that. I love brain science and it's so fascinating to me as to why we do the things that we do so we can connect the dots so we can heal from them. Right. Right. What? Well, you know what? I want to back up a little bit more. Can you tell us how, I'm always very curious how people, experts get into this, you know, not so much industry, but this topic specifically, Mm -hmm. like what was that for you? Can tell us about that? The way I like to tell my story is I was normal till I was 28. Okay. (laughs) And what I mean by normal was I was following my father's path, Mm -hmm. society's path. I was married. I uh, had a house in San Francisco. I had a corporate job. I had the 401k building. We had a five-bedroom house in San Francisco, Mm. which meant we had room for grandchildren. Not children. We were there to produce grandchildren. That was the path. Okay. Producing male heirs was the path. Like Kids were okay, but really it was because that's what my parents expected of me. And I was oh, successful okay. at it. I was good at it. Six-figure income, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then I went to Burning Man in 1998. It goes back that far? Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. 94, 95. Started off with a bunch of friends burning a, a man in effigy over a broken heart in uh, San Francisco. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's I a really interesting history, actually. So in, ni- in 1998, Burning Man was a mere 18,000 people instead of the 70, 80,000. So, yeah, so you went to Burning Man before it was Burning Man, I went I to Burning Man before people <laughs> knew what Burning Man was, including me. Right. Because I was the uh-huh. yuppie. I was the normal guy. My, my first wife, Carol, said, hey, let's, let's go to Burning Man. And the only thing I knew about Burning Man was a picture book I saw, which had naked people walking around encrusted in mud in the desert because mm-hmm. there was like a hot spring or mud spring. And I was like, no, 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 no. That is not me. That's for those other people, those hippies and those mm-hmm. doulas, those, those, those massage therapists. Like, no, 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 that wasn't me. It's Reiki yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He even knew what Reiki was back then. Um, and I was like, no. And she's like, please. I'm like, all right, I'll go. I'll go to make her happy. And I went to Burning Man and packed up the SUV and drove there, got out of the car and had this moment of the the soft wind from the playa, the drums, the electronic music, and the words came to me, you're home. And I was like, huh, hmm. what was that? And what it was was the first time a different part of my psyche showed up and said, there's more to you than this 
beaten path you were following. There's more to you than your father's wet dream of a life. There's more. And it's starting right here, right now. Wow. That was, I guess, a genuine spiritual experience you had. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were there, did you just become more open to what was there to teach you? Slowly, slowly. uh, I'll tell you the favorite story of that Burning Man experience. So my wife and I, you know, I was a New York Jew. She was an Irish Catholic. Uh Uh, Sexuality was not something we talked about. She would actually not get undressed in front of me. Um, It was like guilt meant meant shame. Alcohol Mm -hmm. was about the only time there was sexuality. I had no seduction skills and no understanding of women. She had, you know, I won't talk about her too much, but like she had her own stuff. Mm-hmm. So sex was non-existent. And so two or three days into Burning Man and in the middle of the day, she's like, hey, I heard about this place where there's orgies. Do you want to go? And I was like, oh, yeah. It really came out like, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and because I had a very rich fantasy life, if fueled by the porn of the mm-hmm. day, which was internet news groups. I had a, you know, a very strong masturbation practice and a very strong fantasy <laughs> very life. strong masturbation practice. Indeed, you know, right. I wasn't having sex with my wife. I was a you know, very healthy, you know, 28-year-old guy and, mm-hmm. and did not know what to do with it. Was definitely not going to cheat, you know, so blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so do you want a place with orgies? I'm like, yeah. And so all day I'm thinking about this place, Delilah's. It was called Delilah's Den. Delilah's, Delilah's, thinking about orgies. And am I going to kiss another woman? Is Carol going to have sex with another guy? And all day fantasy and my porn infested mind was like flaring. And so 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, we, we take our bikes across the playa. We walk up to Delilah's Den tent, which is on the edge. There's loud techno music. I'm imagining the Romanesque, you know, orgy inside. Instead, we open up the the flaps of the tent and there's 300 guys and three women. Oh my gosh. Me and Carol. And Carol <laughs> was soon very popular. I was not as popular. And so we hung out there for five minutes or 10 minutes and, you know, watched the, the sole couple in the corner having sex, not very attractive. And then we left. Mm-hmm. But the coolest thing happened after that, which changed my life was that we started to have a conversation about our sex life. Yeah. And I said to her, I don't think you're the last woman in my life I want to kiss. And she's like, you're definitely not the last guy in my life I want to kiss. And I'm like, what? And all of a sudden, we had like this conversation. And one truth led to another truth. And and more intimacy and being unhidden led to being more unhidden. And all of a sudden, for three hours, we talked about our sex life, which was the first honest conversation I'd ever had with anyone in my entire life about sex. And it opened the door to come back to San Francisco and lead this really new path. Oh my gosh. I did not know that. That's such an interesting story. And thank you for sharing that, which is a great segue to what I wanted to ask you. Cause I know that a lot of your work is about telling the truth in your relationships. And so tell us what is the effect of withholding our truth from our intimate partners? So I'll say a, a thing that's chargy. And the second you lie, you stop trusting your partner. The second you withhold, you create distance between you and the person you say you want to be intimate with, which leads to, by definition, by my definition, these are all my viewpoints, but my definition, if you're not revealing everything about your life, you're having some form of a mediocre relationship. Mm-hmm. I know you said it's chargy, and I, I want to just say from personal experience, I 100% yeah. agree with you. And I've been married for 11 mm. years, and... 
it's been a process yeah. of like peeling back the layers with yeah. each other. And I, I too won't say anything about him, but for me, it was a realization because I've always really just been proud of myself and considered myself a truth teller and tell all my mm -hmm. stories here on the podcast to thousands of people every week. But in my marriage, I realized just within the last handful of years, like, oh, there's parts of me that I have held back from him. And, yeah. and you know, yeah. marriage counseling has helped us tremendously and getting my own, you know, having my own therapist and coach to really uncover why, which goes again, back yeah. to that primal part what you were talking about just a few minutes ago. And it's been enormously liberating and scary. I will say that, but just to sort of solidify what you were saying is that it's, it's brought us so much closer and it hasn't mm -hmm. come without its fair share of, of fear, but I, I highly recommend mm -hmm. it. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the funny part. Society educates you and your partner and everyone to be liars, mm -hmm. to withhold. Like it is part of the societal norm to be distant and withhold from your partner because he can't take it. She can't take it. The truth can't be told. These are the white lies. This is the compromises. Society shows us time and time again that it's beneficial to lie to your partner. And so you going against the grain to speak those truths is right. heroic and courageous and unusual. And you break a lot of contracts when you start yeah. telling the truth because like, no, 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 I don't want to know mm -hmm. that about you. I don't want to know about your sexual partners. I don't want to know that that guy was a better sexual partner than me. I don't want to know you're fantasizing about the barista and at Starbucks. I don't want to know about that. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me that. And so what you do is, okay, I won't tell you. And then all of a sudden you have a chasm between you and your partner. You're building the facade. And we have facades relating to facades, and we're calling it marriage or relationship. And if it works, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying it's mediocre. And I say there's so much more if you're willing to go deeper and be more unhidden with your partner. Yes. And I would tag on to that and say, for me, it works until it doesn't. And then it gets to that point where, and I don't know if it's because I work in self-help where I feel like such a hypocrite. If I'm not, mm. if I'm, I, I, the way I look at it is, and maybe it's because I don't want, I don't like the term liar, but I like half truths. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like that term a little bit better, but yeah. I, I, I think that we also carry these identities that we want to be seen as right. And so, sure. and I can't speak for my husband, but maybe I'm just, you know, talking about, and, and please audience, forgive me as I, as I talk about heteronormative relationships is, is the men are typically want to be seen as like you were, you were saying, like they don't have any flaws. And if they had childhood abuse, they just don't talk about it. They're over it. It's not affecting mm -hmm. their relationship now. Who would think that? No, no, and no, for no, women, never, yeah. we don't want to be seen as needy or having issues or being damaged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was hugely or, helpful. Or having an app or having an appetite or having an appetite. Oh, right. Or for, you know, Oh God, don't get me started on the mixed messages uh, we yeah. get as yeah, <laughs> yeah. young women. Don't act yeah. like you want or like sex, but your body and your appearance are the most valuable thing about you. So you <laughs> need that to get, uh. yeah, it's, it's kind of peeling those layers back and, and, and just talking about it. And well, let, let me ask you that. So what is one way for men and women to have better communication? The first thing I want to say before I say that is I, I do my half-truths and don't tell the truth to a lot of people in my life. I'm not saying you have to be around, walking around like an open book. In fact, I deliberately lie to a lot of people. And it's the people, it's the people mm -hmm. I choose to, I want to be intimate with, which is a small yeah. number. It's like a dozen. 
it's not, you know, I know thousands of people. I've known thousands of people. And really is a dozen people in my life where I'm choosing to build a practice. This is the answer to your question. A practice of telling the truth, of revealing, of building containers, of building agreements. Just like you have a practice to learn to play the piano, to hit the fastball, to paint, to sing. It's the same thing with communication. And all of us are trained to be mediocre communicators, Mm -hmm. right? Every single person in society is trained to lie, withhold, and these half-truths. I'm just saying, if you want to be intimate with one person, two people, five people, 100 people, you need to build a practice of revealing yourself if you want to be intimate with them. And the advantage of having a podcast as well is that I just put it out there and people who are interested contact me and I chat. My mom knows certainly a lot more about me from my podcast than if I didn't oh have my, my podcast, Same. like sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> you did you did what? You're doing you're thinking what? I'm like, okay, mom, this is the reason. But the point yeah. is like it's a practice. You have to build a practice around. I love that. I agree with you because I don't I don't think it's healthy either to be to even just have so much compassion and empathy, that's a lot of energy to give out to all of the people. It's a select few people mm-hmm. that we choose to to build this and, and practice 100% because we don't always get it right. But I I, I love that I, you mentioned that too. Like, <laughs> what did you say? We're trained to be terrible communicators. I thought back yeah. at my, because I grew up in a house, I was, I was blessed enough to grow up in a house where there was no outward arguing. Uh, my parents didn't yell at each other. Mm. I don't even think I ever heard my father raise his voice. My mom was another story. She's feisty. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I still didn't learn anything. And I've, you know, I, I just, mm. I read, a, I, well, I try to read about parenting and how to do better. And, and one of the helpful things that I said or read is that if you ever disagree in front of your children, have them see you work it out, like go full circle. So Mm. they see how you actually talk it out. And maybe not that they see the full talk, but just that you come to some kind of make amends to each other and apologize if you need to just to have a conclusion to it and things like that. And I was like, huh, we just, we, and, and like, look at what we see on TV. I got sucked into that Netflix Mm. special, that cheerleading Netflix, probably don't know about it, but there was, they do like these little short, personal story yeah. type of things. And there was this one of the girls and her brother and they were talking about how they, so it was child abuse basically. And then now they're, they're young adults and they're like, we just don't talk about it in our family anymore. And we've just all learned to live together and just not talk about it. And I'm like, that's a, that's America right there. And it's so incredibly sad. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's breaking the rules. It's breaking the family code or something. And while suffering and guess what? that abuse will translate to their children and their children and their children because that's what the unbroken yeah. cycle does. And so Morgan, my second wife, my muse, my partner, my research partner in life has an ex-husband where they have horrible communication, totally antagonistic. It's gotten better over the years, but really antagonistic. And so the kids see that mm-hmm. and feel that and know that. And so if you're listening and thinking your kids don't know everything, you're, you're fooling yourself. You're non-confronting the truth because kids pick up everything. Yeah. And then Morgan comes home to me and we have our, our we call them heated discussions, mm-hmm. which can get pretty heated, but we have our heated discussions and we just keep working on them. And sometimes that takes days, but we have a practice and agreement to stay in it until there's resolution. Mm-hmm. We have the agreement to no matter what, to get to the flat. And we also have the agreement to listen first before speaking. 
and validate the other person's experience. And so there are a lot of specific communication techniques in order to have a superior communication, but it all comes down to I'm committed to being transparent, vulnerable, unhidden, real. So you can be that, and then your transparency begets more of my transparency, and we're in this upward cycle of actually knowing who we are. Mm-hmm. I love that. I call it the pause because I, I think that it can be such a powerful tool when you're communicating, really with anyone, not just your partners, but I think we just naturally want to defend ourselves automatically and yeah. tell you, let me tell you what I think, and we're, we're thinking right. about it when the, pers- the other person only gets two words out, and think we're thinking right. about our response or our argument. And I have found that the pause has been helpful. So helpful, in fact, that I have, there's been many moments where my husband's been talking to me about something that's bothering him. And when I do listen, I actually realize that he's right. And Mm. that I am upset about something that really has nothing to do with him. Or I have acted from a place of fear or Mm. have acted from a place that doesn't have anything to do with what we're arguing about. And I have had to take responsibility for that. I remember the first time that I did it, like the first time that I paused and said, you're right. And I'm sorry. Like the look on his face, I will never forget. I remember where I was standing (laughs) or where he was standing. He was so shocked and was not expecting it at all. Yeah. You look for the cameras. Oh, totally. Like it was, it was such a great moment too for our marriage and also helped him see for both of us, I mean, I don't want to take total responsibility for it, but just really that we can have a grown-up relationship and break the mm-hmm. patterns of our parents. Mm-hmm. I want to I want yeah. to switch gears with you for a minute and ask you about the Me Too movement that happened okay. a couple of years ago that that hasn't you know thankfully gone away. So, how has in in your work how have you seen that the Me Too movement has affected men? I think in my lifetime, it's the most important social thing that's happened by far. I think Me Too is accumulation of 6,000 years of the patriarchy. So the patriarchy really is 6,000 years old. And if you think about it, it seems like a really long time, but in terms of human evolution, it's really not. Mm-hmm. And the patriarchy started off with a term actually was called fatherhood. And it had a benevolent process in over 6,000 years, especially with the industrial era, uh, it's just gone askew, badly askew. And what men are facing today, uh, younger men, Gen Z, Gen Y, uh, mm-hmm. the millennials, is that they've inherited the scripts from previous generations that does not work anymore. And the Me Too movement to me was a huge wake-up call to society that the toxic habits of men and women supporting those men yeah. can no longer hold up. It's time for a change. And as Harvey Weinstein goes through his court case now in New York City, it's happening. And the truth is being told. And the things that men get away with because it was part of culture is now can get you thrown out. Now, unfortunately, our president uh, is proving Me Too, is is weakening the Me Too movement by his actions around women especially. And hopefully there'll be another surgence of it. But to me, it's so important because it gave men the opportunity to actually hear and feel the ramifications of their conscious and unconscious habits. And it's giving mm-hmm. women permission to speak, to say, no, that doesn't feel good. When you do that, you might think it's all fun and games. For for me, it's detrimental. It's triggering. It brings up my trauma 
And it's just giving women permission to speak. So it'll take another generation for it to really have its power, but so important to bring this conversation into mainstream America. I, I agree. I agree with everything. And especially, you know, it's going to take another generation. And it's really, I have so, I applaud millennials for their, I have a someone in my circle who's, she's in her, her very early 30s and she was talking about mm. the sexual experience that she had just so casual about it and not casual from like an irresponsible place, but just casual where, you know, you're talking about the orgy earlier and like my generation, like I'm on the younger ish spectrum of Gen X. Like it was like mm. gasp, you know, for, for my ears, but I loved that it was just part of her sexuality. And I just, I wanted to cry and hug her like, Oh my God, thank God this is starting to shift. And hopefully, you know, for my, my children, my kids are Gen Z and, and that things really, really can start to change. So thank you for your, for your thoughts on that. And I, I want to ask you about because a, a complaint I hear from many of the women and my clients and, and podcast listeners is that they are willing to do their own work, whether it's go to therapy or read self-help books or hire mentors to help them work through their own stuff, trauma therapy, et cetera, but their male partners are not. So whether they're in a relationship mm-hmm. or sometimes it's their brothers or their fathers that they're they're wanting to kind of prescribe personal development to them or therapy or whatever, what advice do you have for them? Well, I'll start with women directly. And then uh, there's a second part to this. So if you're hearing this first part and don't like the answer, there is the second part. The first part is for women, stop making it so easy for men. Women, you are co-creating the situation that you just described. You're, you're, You're not holding your boundaries strong enough for men to actually feel motivated to get off their butts, stop watching sports and Netflix, and actually go. So see give a us coach. an example. So people are moved. I'll, I'll give you a little more theory, and then we'll go to an example. So people are moved by inspiration mm-hmm. or desperation, right? They're moved. They hear a great podcast. They they read a book or they see a movie, and they're like, "Oh, I want to do that." I want. Mm-hmm. They're inspired. But most of the time, people are moved by desperation. Oh, I got kicked out of my job. I'm drinking too much. I'm watching too much porn. A third amazing woman left me. My life sucks. That's when men tend to move. So what women do is they don't feel right about setting boundaries. Women don't know their bottom lines. And what they do is like they nag and they push and they needle, but then the guy doesn't change. And they're like, I'm just going to keep nagging and pushing and needling. And then the guy doesn't change and women stay mm-hmm. way past. And all they, all men are like, huh, well, she's just going to stay anyway. All I have to do is listen to her talk about it. Mm-hmm. All I got to listen to her talk and then I'll say some platitudes mm-hmm. and I'll make nice and I'll buy her something, whatever. And I'll, it'll ease over because it's a pain in the ass for change, yeah. you know, and a lot of women are not in the economical situation to change, which is, which is changing actually with this generation. But the point is like, I get it. I'm not blaming women for this, but what my wife Morgan did to wake me up in time and time again is to say with love, this is my bottom line. So I'll give an example by myself. Mm-hmm. When I met Morgan, I said, I'm a non, I'm a non-monogamous person. I, I, I've been practicing non-monogamy for 20 years. If you want monogamy, 
you might want to look elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Very clear in the first week of our dating. She's like, all right, I'll check it out. And then six months later, she's like, no, not working for me. And it was a lot more dramatic. But she was like, (laughs) not working Mm -hmm. for me. I'm I'm not going to stay in this relationship. I was like, well, what do you want? Do you want me to be monogamous? I'll do anything. Really, I was just like, I'll do anything. And then she came back and came with an agreement. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And we, we, her knowing her bottom lines and saying, my self, my self-care is so important to me that even though I love you, even though you're the most amazing man I've ever been with, even though I feel you're my soulmate, I'm not going to put myself in a self-abuse pattern when you go off and sleep with other mm-hmm. women. And I was like, all right, let's figure something out. And we figured something else out. And it hasn't been easy. But her setting that bottom line, that boundary was a revelation for me because I saw that I was being a little bit lazy and a little bit haughty, a little bit arrogant. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity because she set the bottom line to me to be, okay, let's figure this out together. I love, I love that. Thank you for using yourself as a personal example. And I, I see a lot of myself in your example as well. And, and here, here's what I want to tag on with is that I think what a lot of people don't understand, and this was so helpful to me is to understand the difference mm-hmm. between a boundary and an ultimatum. So an ultimatum is when you have not told the person <laughs> at a time, like yes. they're, they're based in poor boundaries. And it's, it's like when you come to the relationship, you have not spoken about it before and said, if you do this one more time, I am leaving you. You'll give the example of relationships. A boundary is if you said, if you do this again, mm-hmm. I don't see myself staying in this relationship. It's too painful for me. It's, right. it's not blah, 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 blah. That's a boundary. And if your partner calls that an ultimatum, then your partner calls that an ultimatum. Really what it is, it's a, it's a boundary setting. And I think that, you know, when this happened to me in my life, I said, I feel like it's going to be shitty if in 10 years I come to you and have never said anything before and said, I'm done because this is happening. You know, it's like I'm giving us an opportunity to work on this and telling you exactly what I will and will not tolerate. And I expect my partner to do the same for me. 100%. Right. So the line Morgan says, and she she has two daughters. I have two stepdaughters is what would I tell my daughters to do in this situation if they were feeling in a self-abusive relationship? I wasn't a bad person. Sure. I was very clear with who I was. I We had a very open, honest, it's after six months, she's like, this isn't working. And so this is what goes back to a woman's belief in how much she can have, a woman's belief yeah. in how much she has a right to, because women in our society are taught that they're lesser. And that we settle for crumbs. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the change of what Me Too is hopefully going to evoke, the mandatory thing for the evolution of our species is women to say, I deserve to be in a partner who's A, B, C, D, A, F, G, you know, the whole alphabet up to 100, whatever that is. Be demanding, be hungry, be full in what your desire is. Because here's what I'm telling you as a man. The more you believe in yourself of what you want and your big appetite, the better man I'll become Mm -hmm. to match that or I'll leave. Yeah. But wouldn't you want to be with a man who wants to be in the fullness of you? Now, the one caveat is if you demand this now, okay, that might be a bit overwhelming. But if you said, this is the kind of life I want to live, do you want to co-create this with me? Do you want to be my partner? Do you want to join this team, team expansion? And then if the guy's like, all right, I'm up for that game. Let's work on it together. That could be the most fun game ever. So there's not like a now. It's it's more like this is what I want. Do you want to play? Mm-hmm. 
I love that. So yeah, this is what I want. Do you want to play is, is so much better. And I, you know, I was in another relationship for 13 years. I was married before and, and it was a lot of what you were describing about the not great, <laughs> but both. And I, and I own some of my own yeah. stuff, a lot of my own stuff in that too. And the way that I describe it is, and you know, and it was how he was raised. So it's not entirely his fault, but the way I describe it is he was doing his best to clip my wings. And I let him mm. for all those years because I didn't believe that I deserved more. And all these stories of, well, you know, by right. the time I was 29, I'm like, I don't want to have to start over and start dating. And let's, I know he's going to be a right. great dad. He might be a shitty husband, but at least he's a great dad. I would say that mm. to my friends. He was, you know, we didn't right. end up having children together. The universe intervened. But I, I love everything you have to say. Everybody, the book is called Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. Robert Candell, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Anything else you want to say? Like anything you're like, oh, I wish I would have been able to, to say that. There's like 10,000 things. Of course. I said the part about the women's <laughs> side and I'll say for for the men's side, for the women, it's like men, we can do better. Like it's a hard time to be a man. The mm-hmm. 21st century is the hardest time to be a man in the history of men with Me Too and the empowerment of women, and the changing of social structures and the schooling. And so there's really an opportunity and men are heading in the wrong direction. They're they're, they're going to porn and video games and extending their adolescence and all these things. There's, there's really an opportunity for men to step up. And so I spoke a lot about what women can do, but really there's a, there's a, it's the best party. It's like the best time to be a man as well, because we can interact with powerful, sexual, sexually free, own economical, you know, free women. And so if you're willing to step up, there's so much fun to be available. Amazing. Thank you so much. And everybody, the link to all of Robert's website and book and things like that are in the show notes. And you know how much I value your time. And I so appreciate it that you spend it here with my guests and me. And until next time, everyone, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.